0: Welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast, and today I'll be chatting with actor, personal trainer, and author Jason Finney. Jason talks about growing up in Canada, playing as a drummer in various touring bands, what made him want to become a personal trainer, his love of fitness and healthy living, and how that led to him becoming an actor. And also he tells the story of his very first audition, which turns out it was for a very popular television show back at that time. But it's a pretty crazy story that I can't wait for you guys to hear. He also talks about the reality of the audition process and all the steps that an actor goes through when they're on set because there's much more to it than just standing where you're supposed to and saying your lines. So all you aspiring actors that are listening to this show, you'll definitely love what Jason has to say about the acting and audition process. He also talks about working on one of my favorite shows, Blue Mountain State, the differences of working on a film set as opposed to a set for a television show why he loves playing a villain, and the inspiration behind his children's book, Adventures of Captain Pump. It was great getting to chat with Jason, and hopefully we'll get to do it again at some point in the future. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Jason Finney. Here with actor and personal trainer, Mr. Jason Finney. How are you tonight, sir?
1: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: No, absolutely. So uh, I wanted to get started a little bit uh, by getting a little bit of your backstory.
1: Um, Where are you originally from? I'm originally from Montreal, Canada. I was born in the Great White North and uh, basically born with uh, skates on my feet. Started playing hockey at the age of three. And um, right now, I don't know if you... Follow what was going on, but they have so much snow up there; it's unbelievable. And uh, I was just actually speaking to a buddy of mine right before you called, and he showed me a picture of his car literally buried under a mountain of snow. I said, "You can toboggan down the car if you want."
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's funny because uh, a few weeks ago I was actually in uh, Minnesota. Uh, right before they got hit with their really cold spell. It just seems like everywhere in the north has just been extremely cold this year. It's been insane.
1: Oh, it's crazy. I mean, I'm in the New York area, and uh, here we've been getting a lot of rain, just a couple of flurries and a lot of rain. But anything above, let's say, Albany has been snow. So from Albany all the way up into Canada, it's been ridiculous. They've had piles of snow. So we, we kind of escaped it ourselves
0: here. Yeah, I was even in Vegas and it snowed apparently during the night. One of the nights that I was there, I was already asleep, but you know, I was there for a work conference, and then the next morning, everybody was like, "Oh yeah, it snowed last night." I was like, "What?" And I looked outside yeah, and it, it hadn't snowed. It, there weren't any, you know, snow on the ground. But I guess it was just some flurries, but yeah, it was it, it was in crazy. Hawaii, they
1: got snow on the ground? Did you see that last week? No. Oh, my God, it was crazy. They actually got snow on the ground in Hawaii last week. It was crazy.
0: Wow, that is crazy. So growing up, um, you know, you mentioned you were pretty much born with skates on your feet. You were playing hockey. You were also um, a drummer as well. So uh, how did you get interested in both of those things?
1: Well, hockey it was just something that you do. It's like if you're born in Canada, you're going to play hockey, especially as, as a male growing up back then. Um, I loved the sport, so it wasn't even, you know, anything that my parents had to force me into. it was just I loved it and, and I excelled at it, so it was great. Uh, the music was something that my mom brought into my life because she was a music teacher. And um, you know I, I fell in love with music and I had um, I had a tendency to be able to play instruments, uh, especially the drums, that was my, my thing. But mom always wanted me to play other things. So, you know, I started off on the piano and I never liked the piano. Then I tried guitar because she wanted me to play guitar and not wanted guitar. So it took me a while to finally convince her to let me try, you know, the drums. It did work finally, i goodness this. And um, I was able to fulfill uh, my desire to be a drummer. And uh, eventually that took over. And my love for music, um, basically took over, and that was the end of hockey. Uh, and I ended up playing in many bands throughout my um, late teenage years and into my 20s, uh, actually living in New York uh, in the early 90s and being uh, basically a, a touring band where we play everywhere. And back in the day, it was incredible because in New York, There was a really good scene. Uh, There was all kinds of amazing clubs to play at where everybody who was someone at that time had played, including CBGBs. And I was fortunate enough to play there. Uh, And now uh, it's closed and I believe it's a clothing store or something now. But um, it was absolutely incredible because, you know, not knowing what it was before I actually played. You'd think, my goodness, CBGBs it's just like the name itself was almost like you know playing at Yankee Stadium or, or, or something like that. It was that's what it meant to musicians. And the place itself was a hole in the wall. <laughs> I don't know if you ever went to it but it was literally a small little dingy place and there was nothing to write home about. It's just the institution uh, was what it was because of the people that went in there and played. You know, from Bowie to, uh, I believe, uh, the police played there. Wow, um, It was just, oh, it was a place where, at the time, if you were up and coming or if you were just, you know, coming out onto the scene, that's where you went. And then um, later on, it became the place to play if you were a big name. Just these little pop-up shows that would happen every once in a while. You know, you'd find out a couple of hours before that so-and-so was going to be at CBGB's. And yeah, that was incredible. So we played places like that, the Cat Club, China Club, Dance Ceteria, Limelight, all these amazing places. And uh, on Bleecker Street, there's still a bunch of places, uh, including the Bitter End, where we played, and Kenny's Castaways. These were all really cool places. And back in the day, uh, even today, it's it's the same, but you just don't have as many places to, to play at. A band will get one set. So let's say, They have six sets in the night. They'll give you 45 minutes. They'll give you tickets to sell for your 45 minutes. You'll have a 10-minute sound check. Uh, Get up there, play, leave, and then 10 minutes, and then the next band is up there. And that's how it used to be back in the day. And and it was pretty much a showcase every single time we played. Coming from Canada, uh, immediately we got really good responses because we had a video playing uh, across Canada back in the day. when we first moved down to New York and that got us a lot of attention here. And we ended up with Debbie Gibson's management company. Um, same guy that was, his name was Doug Breitbart. He managed us for a while. And then we ended up with a spec deal with Quincy Jones, which was really cool. So it was a, a, a lot of fun. Uh, it was, you know, early nineties music was, um, taking a different turn, uh, the, the uh, electronic age was coming uh, into um, the scene, drum machines and, and things like that, uh, a lot of programmed uh, music with uh, singing on top of it was uh, the big craze, uh, bands like Batesh Mode, for example, that used to tour um, and have a drum machine on stage and have lights on the drum machine and not have a drummer. <laughs> <laughs> So my job became, uh, unfortunately, uh, easily replaceable.
0: You can never replace the drummer.
1: Well, they did for quite a while, you know, <laughs> especially in recordings. A lot of bands went to drum machines because it, it, it was cheap, you know? Right. You didn't have to sound check. You didn't have to set up. You didn't have to do anything. All you had to do was program ahead of time what you wanted to, the drums to be and what you wanted the, the drum line to be, and you just pressed play, and that was the end of it. And it was the big craze, like bands like Duran Duran and uh, In Excess and all these these uh, bands that would come out, I guess they came out in what, like late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. That's when that whole craze started and it was very popular. In fact, if you didn't use a drum machine, people wondered what was wrong with you.
0: <laughs> I'd never heard of that before. That's crazy.
1: Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Look at the page Mode. If you go back in in, um, in their earlier videos, I think they even have videos of them playing live with a drum machine on stage with lights looking down on the drum machine.
0: <laughs> wow. That's wild.
1: Frankie Goes to Hollywood, right? You know that song? hmm So there's no snare in that song at all. Oh, you're and right. Snare, and and you know, so that in itself was um, demonstrative of where music was headed. You know, it was all about the backbeat and all about the uh, electronic music that was, you know, playing behind what was coming in from the rhythm section. That's wild. Yeah, it was cool. It was, a quick, it was fun at the same time for me. It was a little shocking. As a drummer, it was a little traumatizing, to be honest with you, because, you know, here I am. It's like I'm a young kid. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm in a band, per se. I'm playing, you know. Uh, live shows and stuff like that. But for recordings, sometimes I'd be used, sometimes I wouldn't. And that was just par for the course back then. And then what happened was drum machines uh, became too perfect. The sound was too perfect. It didn't have an actual fluctuation as a human does. So even when a human's playing on a click track, sometimes they'll be a little bit ahead of the beat, sometimes a little bit behind. And, you know, we call that the pocket. So, you know, you're either right on it, or you're just a little behind or a little in front of it, whereas a drum machine is always right on it. So there was no real feel to the music. The music became very regimented. Well, and, you know, taking the human
0: element out of it, you know, it, it does probably make it sound too perfect.
1: Yeah, and eventually people got sick of that, and they went back to using you know, live drummers, which to me is you can't replace a live drummer. You know, you, it, it, There's certain nuances that you can't do with a machine. Even if, like, even if you program the machine to play a little off here and there, because now, I mean, it's unbelievable what they can do. They can have a, a snare line, for example, where you could have the snare hit in different places. So it sounds like it's more of a human playing, because a human doesn't always hit the snare exactly in the same sweet spot. There's a couple of times it'll be a little off, you might hit a bit of a rim, you know, whatever. But... Um, that being said, machines can do all kinds of things today, but you can't replace a live drummer. It's just, there's nothing like listening to live music being played by live musicians.
0: Well, especially with drums, you know, when you have like a big drum solo and you're just, if you're especially watching it live and you're seeing the drummer get really into it and just, you know, moving around all crazy and everything, it, it gets you more into the show. So in a way, You know the drummer is essential in in driving the show in a way.
1: Exactly. Anything could stop and the show goes on as long as the drummer keeps going. The second the drummer stops, that's the end of it.
0: No, I I agree 100%, but uh, what was it that drew you specifically to the drums?
1: Uh, To be honest, I loved the drums from the day I I heard them, from the day I, I, you know, when I was a kid. I used to, you know and the pots and the pans and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. I just had rhythm. And um, I guess mom didn't really want me to be a drummer because of the noise it made (laughs) at the time. I don't know. But finally, I got her to trade an old rocking chair with one of her colleagues for an old drum set. And today, I wish I had that drum set. It was a bolero. And that would be a collector's item today. Um, After that, I, I got a beautiful Christmas gift. Uh, from my parents, and it was a Ludwig Rockers set. And I still have that one, thank goodness. But um, I wish I had the old Bolero, because that would be something nice to have. Uh, that being said, I just enjoyed it, and I was able to sit down and play. I, I, I don't know. It's just one of those things. I was able to sit down, put the record on, and play to the record without ever having to take a lesson or anything like that. Then once I realized that I liked it, and you know, I had this penchant for it, I did take lessons. I uh, I took it more seriously and it became uh, my career for almost uh, 12 years.
0: Kind of skipping ahead a little bit. uh, I was reading your bio and it said after you graduated from the university of Ottawa, you started a personal training business. What was it that inspired you to do that?
1: Well, over the years, even when I was playing music, I was always exercising and working out. You know, that was just something that I did through my hockey and, um, Going backwards before I go forwards, when I was very young, like 8, nine, ten years old, I would make a, a little training camp in my parents' backyard in the off-season. So I was always interested in improving and getting stronger and faster and uh, bigger. All these things were important to me. And it just carried on through my music years, which actually became a bit of a hindrance with my some of my bandmates time who didn't necessarily think I should be working out as much because at the time drummers were not necessarily muscular figures (laughs) I'm thinking yeah okay well I enjoy doing this and I want to keep doing it and it's just something that you know um, uh, that that keeps me going like the band would would, uh, often wake up late when we were on the road for example and I'd end up taking the touring bus through the little town that we were in at the time and find the nearest gym and go to and have a workout while everybody else was still sleeping. So here I am driving with this big tour bus looking for a gym and everybody else is snoring away. <laughs> <laughs> so that was fantastic, it was a lot of fun, I enjoyed that. But um, for me, it was just uh, something that I enjoyed doing. you know. And then from there, uh, once I went back to university, got my degrees, uh, the natural progression for me was to simply start personal training because I had done that before uh, here and there when I was playing music. I was very fortunate to have a great mentor. Uh, when I grew up in, in Canada, we have um, a system that's a little bit different than in the States. High school went to grade 11. And once you graduated from high school, before you went to university, you went into a system called CJAP and CJEP is a two-year pre-university program that's set up exactly like a university one. So that's when you go to the classes and, you know, the the teacher doesn't come to you, you go to the teacher, you make your own schedule, just like you would for university. But the cool thing about that is that if you mess up in your pre-university, you know, it's not going to necessarily affect you in the real university marks. Um, So you kind of get a a little bit of a a teaching or a breeding ground before you get to the real deal. Um, For me, that was very helpful. And also I was able to take an actual bodybuilding class during that time with a a teacher who his job was to teach bodybuilding and healthy living, which was fantastic. And that was uh, what really got me started. So when I was 17, I was able to do that. And shortly after, enrolling in that class during the semester, I started teaching. I I started being like kind of a teacher's assistant. And that's when, you know, I basically started personal training and and I'm still doing it to this day.
0: Kind of backtracking a little bit when you said you would go work out while the other bandmates were still sleeping. Yeah. There's something, to me, there's nothing quite like, you know, whether it's going out for a run or doing yoga in the morning, there's something that's that's right about starting off the day with doing some type of workout. Like I feel like it's just you're setting the tone, and you have a much better day than if you just kind of roll out of bed at the last minute and you're rushing to get ready, you know, to get to work and everything. So, no, I, I'm kind of the same way. I I much prefer you know working out in the morning than I do in like the afternoon or in the evening.
1: Absolutely. I mean, but you have to look at the context, right? At night, we'd be working, we'd be playing and doing, uh, you know, three or four sets a night, finishing at two or three in the morning, uh, depending on where we were playing at the time. Then, you know, the regular schedule would be that after the gig, we'd come back to wherever we were staying, and we usually had a kitchen, and I'd usually do some cooking. I I still love to cook to this day. I cook every single night. And, um, you know, I'd cook a big meal for everybody, whoever wanted to eat. Then everybody would go to sleep. Um, and then I'd wake up somewhere in the neighborhood of nine, ten, whatever. And I'm ready to go, you know, and, and work out while everybody else is in bed. And their whole thing was to wake up just in time for star Trek to come on at noon. <laughs> 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 so, so I'd be at the gym and they'd be watching star Trek. I'd come back when it was just finishing because I was, I wasn't really a Trekkie. I was more of, of a, of a weightlifting fanatic. And, um, so that was the deal with that and then we'd get ready you know go for a sound check and go for a meal and do it all over again and that was my life for quite a while
0: that's fantastic now through this whole process how are you introduced to the acting world
1: well I fall into the acting world simply because um, at the time when I was personal training one of my clients was an agent and she thought that my look might somehow you know be marketable and uh you know suggested to give it a try so i said why not you know we have to lose and the first audition i ever had was for x-files and i actually got a callback for the role it was just to play a cop a chicago cop and um i had no idea what a callback was so you know My agent said, Well, you have to go back and just do it again because you're like one of the few that they've chosen to, you know, see for the actual role. I go, Okay, well, that's great. So I get to the call back, I get back into the room, and I had no idea what was going to, you know, what I'd be confronted with. I walk into the room, and here is this huge table at the end of the room. And we're not talking a big room, you're talking like, you know, a regular size living room, you know, uh, I don't know. Fifteen by by twenty or something like that, mm-hmm. and uh, at the end of the room is this big long table, and there's about ten people sitting behind the table, and one guy in the middle who I recognize as being Chris Carter, who's the you know creator of the X Files. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden, my palms get sweaty, my heart's starting to pump, and I had a couple of lines, you know, like freeze, don't move, or you know something like that, and. I'm like shaking, standing on this mark, whereas it was so easy the day before, you know, just doing it in front of a camera and and, and, a, and a casting director. So that was my first experience, which was really a cool experience but terrifying at the same time, especially for someone who'd never done it before. I didn't get the role, but I got the bug, and one of my um, one of my friends who was also with the same agent that I was with now, he was, um, an actual teacher. So he had a a school and he had a, a, um, you know, a, a really cool studio and, um, we bartered for about six months. I trained him and then he allowed me to come and take classes at his studio. And that's pretty much how it all started. And, um, shortly thereafter I booked and, my first ever booked gig was Shredder in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the TV series. And um, that was a lot of fun. That was something that aired on Kids Fox, right? And that was just a great experience all around. And uh, yeah, pretty much been doing it ever since.
0: So your, really your first introduction to the acting world was auditioning for what was at the time one of the top shows in the world?
1: Correct. And that's awesome. <laughs> first time, first time ever. I mean, discounting grade five when I did a little play in school—that's <laughs> my first time. That's that's a pretty well, big jump. It was pretty cool. I, thought, I had no idea. You know, I think sometimes ignorance is bliss because you know you can't fear what, what you don't know, and um, I had no idea what to go in, what I was expecting, or what, what was what I was going into. And the fact that I was, you know, oblivious to that fact, I think helped me. And otherwise, I would have been nervous right from the get go and I probably would have, you know, messed up even more than I did. Um, But it was a great learning experience. And it also taught me to this day that those nerves never go away. You just have to know how to control them. And uh, that's something that is, is a skill. Every actor will tell you that. You know, fear is simply part of the game and you have to know how to harness it and bring it in so you can use it as part of your audition because you're never going to eliminate it and you don't want to eliminate it because it kind of allows a certain arousal to take place while you're, you know, living this character in the moment, while you're bringing this thing to life that you created through words that are on a page you know, based on your perception and your life itself and, and, you know, uh, how you viewed the character and so on. So all that, you know, plays into creating the character through its backstory and everything else. And um, it was fabulous. It was a great learning experience and, you know, um, a great story to tell people who want to get into acting.
0: Well, it's funny you say that because uh, having, like, the butterflies in your stomach feeling and that, if you don't have that, then you know that you don't need to do this anymore. So, in a way, it's kind of like the nervousness. Also, in a way, shows that you're still, you know, excited and anxious to do what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the profession that we've chosen. I mean, we're kind of masochists in a way. I mean, you know, we get rejected more than anything. Uh, if we got the gigs that we got rejected on uh versus the ones we actually book, we'd probably all be you know huge stars and millionaires, <laughs> right? The reality is you know you book if you book twenty percent of the auditions you go into, you are doing exceptionally well. And that's only about one percent of working actors do that. and um you know, so you have to be ready and you have to be prepared. And accept the fact that, you know, most of your life, if you choose to live as an actor, you're going to be rejected and you have to learn how to accept it. And, you know, the worst thing is, or the hardest thing is, is when you get close to a role and you get a phone call from your agent and they tell you that uh, you're either pinned for a role or that, um, you know, they're going to send you for consideration to the producers, then it becomes something that's real. So, you know, if you go in for an audition, you do the audition never hear from them again, it's not such a big deal. I mean, you know, you do your job, you try as an actor to always go in and be your best. Uh, that is your job, is to make sure that you leave a good memory and they remember you for the right reasons as opposed to the wrong reasons. Uh, if you can do that, then your job as an actor has been done. So what you have to do is to, Make friends, and 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 you have to make fans, and those people are the casting directors. They have to become your friends, and they have to be your fans. And if you've done that, then you've done your job as an actor. Because anything over and above that, once they submit it to producers and directors, it's out of their hands. But uh, so anything can happen. You don't know what they're really looking for. You might not. Fit the actual physical bill they're looking for. You might, you know, remind them of something that they don't want to be reminded of. Who knows? you never know. There's a million reasons why you don't get it. And there's a million reasons why, you know, you uh, can get it. You just don't know what's going to happen once, you know, you leave that room. So once you leave that room and the casting director is happy with what you did, and most often you can tell, there's a certain vibe, there's a certain energy in the room uh, when you've done well you know you get they don't ever really tell you very much that sometimes you'll get that was a great read or whatever it may be but you're not going to get them you know to give you a whole dissertation of what they thought of your your audition and you can't expect that you know they're seeing 150 people a day you know they can't spend five minutes with each person it'll never end so um you know learn to read between the lines and between the smiles and you know, listen to the intonation of their voice and you know. And the best gauge is if you feel good about what you did, then that's the most important thing. And um, sometimes it's harder than others. You know, honestly, an audition is kind of like a workout. Sometimes you'll have a good day and you'll be on and you'll be able to lift a lot more because, you know, power and strength is cyclical. And uh, you don't always have the same amount of power and strength for every workout, you know, depending on what's happening. Maybe you didn't sleep enough the night before, or you didn't eat properly, or, you know, you skipped a couple of meals or whatever it may be. It could be a different time of year and your body, you know, might be fighting a little something. Your immune system might be a little low. Metabolism might be a little slow. All these things that can come into play. The same thing when you're going into an audition room, you know, all variables have to click. Everything has to be right for you to come in there and just blow them away. And we do our best to make sure that that's the case every single time. But, hey, we're human. You know, we're not drum machines. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we can do our best. And if our best has been done, then our job's done.
0: No, and I, I think you make a lot of great points. And kind of going off of that, you know, you've been in, you know, roles in both film and television. But I did want to ask you two things about that. The first, what is your your overall favorite part of the acting process?
1: Oh, well, see, the audition part is completely different from actually working on set. Right. Once you get beyond the audition part and you've gotten the role, everything changes. It's not the same animal anymore. In, in fact, you know, it's not even close to the same jungle. Uh, everything is different. Um, you're, you're now able to discuss things with the director and uh, figure out what's happening as you read through because what happens is when you come on you know the, the morning of and you're working your, your scene, you meet your scene partners, uh, you do a blocking, you do a read through, you figure out you know what, what is what and, and you see the scene come to life minute by minute by minute as you progress through this rehearsal process. And the blocking process, and um, that's the fun part because you know you have the ability there to formulate certain things that perhaps you didn't know beforehand simply because you're now in the room, for example, where you're actually shooting, and you see that okay, I can I see that table, there's that, that chair, um, I can, and then you have to hit your mark, of course, which is very important, uh, hitting your mark is when you basically uh, are given a point of where you need to stop so the camera could get you right in the the sweet spot, as we say. So uh, let's say you're walking in the room with three other actors and you all have a a mark to hit. If you don't hit that mark, no matter how good the lines are, you're not going to get the screen time. Uh, And that's important. And, And a good actor is not on camera when they're speaking. A good actor is on camera when they're listening. If your ability to absorb what is coming towards you is good and you know the eyes capture that, a cameraman will jump on you. They love that. And then in the editing room, they'll see that and they'll keep it. So the more that you're on camera when you're not speaking is really the sign of how much they appreciated your work.
0: Yeah, that's another thing. You know, you mentioning that is um, kind of a story that I can relate to myself. Is that um, a couple of months ago, um, I directed my first short, and oh, cool. it was uh, it was very much a learning process for me because I didn't I knew of it but didn't know in detail as far as you know working with the actors, as far as hitting their marks, and then working with the director of photography and various things like that. There's there's so many little things that go into, you know, even doing a short, much less, you know, a feature or an ongoing TV series. So it, right. it's learning the little things like that, like you mentioned, that that really make people stand out.
1: Now, on top of all those little mechanical things, once all that's set and, and you know, you have it, it ha- you have to forget about it and just let the process happen organically. It has to just, now you have to get back in character, you know, you have to play everything that you pre- everything that you prepared has to come in during that performance, and then on top of that, you got to get the marks and all those things that that mechanically has to happen. They can't happen uh, while you're looking for them. But I'll give you an example. You remember Columbo?
0: Uh, it doesn't sound familiar.
1: Oh, you have to look it up. Columbo was a huge uh, show back in the '70s, and um, the actor—what uh, was his name again? Alan, I forget his last name, but he was famous uh, for always looking down at the ground. Whenever he was thinking, um, if, if you Google Colombo, you'll see all of the scenes, perhaps, him always looking down and, and being kind of like in thought. But he revealed that he wasn't really just looking down, he was looking for the mark. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, awesome. The way... The way he did it, he brought it into his performance.
0: That's smart.
1: Yeah, and, you know, it's a great trick. And, you know, it, it, whatever you can do, whatever works for you is what we try and bring, you know, to the, to the table. And um, I, I, had, I would have never known if he didn't bring it out there and say it. It was just so organically done. It was so natural. And it always looked like he was thinking about something. It was really cool.
0: I'll have to look that up whenever we're done. But uh, the other question I had, because um, I, I haven't talked with too many actors who have worked in both film and television that's usually been pretty much exclusive to one or the other. Are there any differences in working on a TV show as far as working on a film?
1: Well, when you're working on a TV show, it's very fast. It's like, it's like fast food versus um, fine dining basically you have a very short amount of time to get the work done because there's so much crammed in in that day. There's so much crammed in when you're doing an episode in five days or seven days of shooting. Right. Whereas when you're doing a feature, you have a lot more time because the feature is spread out anywhere between 22 days and up. I mean, up to like six months from some movies take to, to shoot. But uh, you know the average is between 22 and 30 days, mm-hmm. and you, you have a little bit more leeway, a little bit more time. Whereas uh, when you're shooting TV, it's fast. I mean, literally, I shot uh, an episode of FBI um, in November, and it literally aired two weeks later. Oh wow! Which is which is practically unheard of. It's like, and basically, it was not even it was a week and a half because we were still shooting when it was airing the previous um, episode. And what they did is they skipped ours forward. I guess the producers liked it and and the uh, network liked it. And they actually jumped ours um, and put it a a week ahead of schedule, which was, wow. I mean, the turnaround is so fast when it comes to TV. Uh, And then you have less time to be able to... um, really showcase what you have so close-ups for example on tv you'll have maybe maybe two sometimes three if you're lucky you'll get three opportunities maximum for your close-up whereas film it could go on a little longer uh i shot imperium with daniel ratcliffe and that was fantastic and you know we took our time on certain scenes because there's just a lot of a lot of uh, things happening in that particular scene through the close-ups and, and you know, um, sometimes we'll shoot the same thing over and over again six, seven, eight, nine times uh, when you're doing film because you have a little bit more time to do so, you know? Right. That's the biggest difference.
0: I gotcha. No, it it definitely makes sense that, you know, TV would shoot you know, at a much faster pace because you have to meet a, a tighter deadline and things like that so no that that oh, definitely yeah. makes sense um one role that i did want to ask you about just because i was a huge fan of the show and i still to this day think that it's extremely underrated because of how funny it was you uh-huh. were on an episode of blue mountain state <laughs> yeah. what was it like being on set because that looked like a blast to make
1: so here's the cool thing about that. Remember I told you about the CJP that happens between high school and university in Canada? Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, well, in Quebec. So that was shot at the same place I went to CJP. Oh, so really? The actual campus of Blue Mountain State was uh, in St. Anne de Bellevue, Quebec, and that was called Saint, um, John Abbott College. And uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, it was really interesting. My scene wasn't shot there, but uh, to be um, part of the show that you know is uh, shot where you actually go to school. When you went to hockey school when you were a kid, for example, I used to go there for border uh, hockey school camp. Um, it, it was just been fantastic. It was just a really cool experience. Yeah, yeah, that was a fun show, um, and, and uh, it was definitely a, a cool scene getting to throw people over the table. Did you see that?
0: Mm-hmm. No, I was a huge fan of that show back in the day.
1: Yeah, it was very cool.
0: No, that's one of those shows that from like the time that it starts until the credits, I'm laughing pretty much the entire time because it's just so silly and so over the top sometimes. But it's that's what made it fun. It was exactly what it needed to be. It was just a super fun show.
1: It was for the high school, college kids. That, yeah. That was you know, the audience. Of course, it's going to be Goofy and funny, and it's going to be silly and it's going to be, you know, off the wall and over the top. But that's like you said,
0: no, absolutely. Um, kind of transitioning into um, another th- cool thing that you've done, um, you actually wrote a book called Adventures of Captain Pump, which is a children's book. Uh, what was the inspiration behind that?
1: I'm so excited about that, man. That is that is my baby right there. Uh, So what happened was I actually shot um, a a program. It was with a bunch of of kids in in the cast. It was uh, tales of the never ending story. And the cool thing about that was uh, working with all these kids that were just carefree. And, you know, there were so many different types of kids. There was, you know, uh, little chunkier ones and, and skinnier ones. And there was girls and there was boys and they had all these different personalities and they all meshed together. It was a like really fun. And shortly after I did that gig, I did um, a commercial with this kid named Guido, And he was a 21 year old skinny Italian guy. He was like one of these, like kind of like always looking to be the class clown. You know what I mean? He was always looking to be the funny guy. And I was, at the time, pretty big bodybuilding-wise. Like, at the time, I was probably about 240 or something like that. And I, my job was to uh, hold a canoe with these people in the canoe while we're kind of walking towards the lake. But they're already in the canoe, and we're holding it and going towards the lake with it on our shoulders, right? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Guido was just all day long being Guido. And From that experience and then the kids' experience, I said, man, let me – got to put something together here. So the original concept was Guido and Captain Pump, and it was me uh, playing Captain Pump as a drill sergeant trying to get this skinny Guido in shape. (laughs) And that was the original, original, original concept. And then literally within a couple of hours, I kid you not, I had – this whole world of characters created. I had the name of what I wanted. I had uh, the the sets were already established. I sat at the computer and it just all came out. And uh, I was very, very, very pleased that finally, after many years of trying to get this off the ground, we finally got it released. It's out there. It's available now for people to enjoy and for kids to learn from and for parents to uh, be able to, to be um, happy to show the book to their kids because there's some positivity and there's a lot of good things, wholesome reading for kids, uh, and all that to help them become better uh, people for who they are and more accepting of other cultures and continents and people and um, just develop good habits so that they could grow up to be healthy individuals and learn how important it is to take care of your fitness, your health and your nutrition at an early age so that you can carry on these habits throughout your life. And that's what I'm really hoping to, to accomplish with this. And uh, this is the first book of many. I already have two more written and illustrated ready to go. We're going to be releasing those in uh, the coming months. And I'm just looking forward to uh, seeing where this will take me. I'm hoping to get it on TV as a show so we could, um, you know, reach as many kids as possible. So many kids need help today. Uh, they need guidance. They, they need to understand how important it is to get away from a screen and start moving your body and exercising it and getting out there and playing. And, and there's so much development that happens when a child's at play. You know, cognitively speaking, physically speaking, uh, all these different things happen when exercise is, is, uh, is being done. When you engage in movement, it's very important. And, um, I'm just hoping that, you know, the craze catches on and kids just start, you know, reversing the trend of what's happening right now. Cause unfortunately kids obesity is getting worse instead of better. Um, and, you know, we have to somehow get through to the kids how important it is to start exercising, you know their um, their bodies as much as they're exercising their fingers with their tablets and their games and everything else um, and of course the food you know but here's the thing with the food is that if you're exercising and you're moving your body and you're active at least an hour a day every single day your body's going to be able to assimilate and use a lot of the food that you eat regardless of what it is you're putting into your body because it's going to need it it's going to need it as fuel the biggest problem now is kids are not active so whatever they do take in and they're taking in garbage uh, is sitting in their stomachs and and unfortunately that's the biggest problem is inactivity so we got to get the kids to be active again and uh, I'm hoping that this will be a, a part of it
0: no i i agree with everything you said and you know i when i was introduced to to what this is. And, you know, I looked at the website and it's funny you mentioned that because I thought the same thing when I was reading through the descriptions and everything, I thought I could see this being, you know, an animated series. So who knows, maybe that'll be something that happens down the line.
1: That's the goal. I'm working with a producer right now, actually. And, um, we, we have a pitch going in. So I've got my fingers crossed on that one. Um, you know, the most important thing is, I mean, kids need a positive role model. When I was growing up, there was all kinds of things to, to, to look into or to uh, look up to. You know, you had Captain Kangaroo, you had Mr. Green Jeans, you had um, Mr. Rogers. You know, these were just real people that you know were there to help the kids, not just the cartoon. So it's important to have the live action element in there as much as you have the cartoon, because I think when you have just a cartoon, it's very difficult to uh, latch that on to reality. You know, if you have an actual human being there speaking to the kids and working through you know, the series and that kind of thing, uh, it becomes more real for the kid, of course, uh, because you're not looking at a comic strip. You're looking at a person. And I'm hoping that that's going to be part of it, too. So we want to put a live action component in the show.
0: No, absolutely, and I I definitely look forward to to checking it out. I mean, you know, it's it's like I said, I I love the concept, you know, just the, the even the the name just in general just kind of drew me into it, and then reading through what the book's about, all the de- character descriptions and everything, it it sounds like a really cool story. And you mentioning that, you know, it took you a short amount of time to come up with everything that just kind of shows that, you know, all it takes is that one little spark, and then the rest of the ideas just kind of naturally flow in
1: it's amazing you know some of the most iconic songs getting back to music for a second that uh, that we know and we love and we've been singing for years were written in literally 10 minutes
0: that's <laughs> yeah, insane to think about
1: you know it's crazy
0: no absolutely so what's next for you uh what's next uh, do you have any upcoming projects as far as uh film and tv goes that you can talk about
1: well right now there's a lot going on with the book a lot of promotions, uh, a lot of um, uh, interviews, TV appearances, things like that to get this book going and to get the, uh, as much as possible, you know, keep this idea of fitness and nutrition and healthy living in the forefront of kids' minds. Uh, That's my main goal right now. There's a couple of projects that are in the pipeline uh, for the next couple of months. Um, We're going to be in pre-production, working on a couple of stuff out of Arizona, um, I can't talk about them right now because uh, we just are in the uh, planning stages. But um, we have about two movies that uh, we've been approached to do, which I'm very pleased about. Uh, one is going to be, um, I, can, I can give you a little bit of something. It's going to be a horror movie. And uh, I'm going to play the lead role in a horror movie. That uh, I can't go beyond that, but it's going to be something that is a thriller that uh, we haven't seen in a while. It's going to play with your mind. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I write kids books and I'll be in a horror movie.
0: <laughs> hey, that's the cool thing about this business is the variety.
1: It is. And the cool thing also about that is that people have to understand and realize that you're playing a part. You know what I mean? If I, yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like,
1: that's the most important thing is that, uh, you know, our job is to, to bring to life something that was put on paper. Uh, and, um, you know, we do that the best way that we know how to make sure that we bring three dimensions to the character so that the audience can see exactly what's happening right from the inception of what it is we're doing through uh, the whole, you know, performance. Um, for example, if you're doing a movie like this where you're doing a thriller slash horror, you know, uh, you have to have so many different layers built up on your character because the character has to be likable because the character is a villain, right? Mm -hmm. But a a villain usually is, first of all, a villain is a lot more fun to play than the hero because the villain has a lot more layers to him or her. Uh, And you have to make that villain likable, in, in a certain way. It has to, you have to find a way to endear yourself to the audience. And uh, a lot of the time it happens through a seduction process where you, know, you as the actor um, are kind of either seducing the other character or you're in the plot, you have a, you're just a, a, a seductive type of person uh, you can't play it one note and be, you know, the, the boring guy who's always mean because it just doesn't work. You know, you have to have layers. Human beings, we all have layers. When a, a camera's not rolling, you know, and the day with somebody, there's going to be a whole slew of different things that come out of that person, you know, uh, moods and, um, you know, uh, different uh, conversations and, and looks all these different things the way they carry themselves the way they'll walk it depends all these things so we have to build that into the character and that's why uh, playing this kind of a character is very appealing to me because you can build all kinds of different layers on it and, and the idea is to surprise the audience somewhere in in that whole you know environment uh, and when you're playing the villain for example one of the best villains I think is Lex Luthor, fantastic villain. You know, uh, you love Lex Luthor, but you hate him at the same time. But you you, you can't help but admire him because he's so smart.
0: He's charmingly evil.
1: There you go, charming, that's the word.
0: No, absolutely no. Lex Lex Luthor is one of my favorite, not just characters in a comic book universe, but just in general because he has very charming qualities about him. But yeah. at the same time, he's garbage, but you still kind of root for him in a way.:
1: You always have to be able to uh, you have to be a character where people are rooting for you as, as the villain. Otherwise, you, you don't do your job. You, you, you know if they hate you from the get-go, then it doesn't work. They have, There's got to be a likable person there's got to be something likable about you. It doesn't have to be much sometimes but there's got to be something there that makes the audience want to know more about you and want to follow your journey.
0: No, I agree a hundred percent. Um, last question. Do you have any website or social media you'd like to plug so the listeners can follow you?
1: Oh yeah. Um, I'm on Instagram at Jason Finney, Jason two S's cause mom, I to take my life a living hell. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: uh, I have a bunch of websites. There's Body by Jason with two S's, which is my fitness site, um, and there is uh, com, which is my actor site, and there is com. So I'm reachable pretty much anywhere. I'm I'm one of those people that I tell my friends and family, say, "Don't worry, you know, I'll never do anything that's against the law because I can't hide. <laughs> I'm all over." <laughs>
0: no, it sounds like you're definitely not hard to
1: find. No, I'm not hard to find at all. No, 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 that's for sure. Actually, um, it's interesting because I just did something called an EPK, which is an electronic press kit over the weekend because I have all these projects happening and we're in the middle, of, like I said, of, of, uh, of uh, pitching. And um, so I had my PR people uh, connect me with this incredible lady who did this, uh, put this incredible press kit thing together where everything's interactive. So it opens up like a PDF, and then you click on all these different titles that open up into websites or interviews or any kind of web page, anything is out there that's online. And uh, it's just been fantastic. Um, so everything now is put on two pages. So um, if, if I, I'm going to find a way to somehow put that up somewhere, and you know, send people to that, because then you don't have to send anything else out. Everything's there. That's awesome. Yeah, it's cool. So that's what's happening coming up. Um, a lot of really exciting things happening. I'm very blessed. I'm, I'm very, you know, happy with the, how things are going and uh, grateful that uh, people have embraced the adventures of Captain Pomp as they have. Uh, you know, I've gotten all kinds of great reviews and um, comments and, and, you know, kids uh, there's videos that are being posted of with parents and their kids in the book, and it, it's just fantastic. I'm just so happy about it.
0: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for taking the time to do this interview. It was great.
1: Well, thanks so much. I appreciate your time, and uh, I enjoyed it very much.
0: Thanks again to Jason Finney. If you're an aspiring actor or you just want to work in the film and entertainment industry in general, Hopefully you got something out of Jason's stories, his experiences. Be sure to follow him on social media to find out what he'll be up to next. For next week's show, I'm going to be highlighting the film Son of a Gun, which is a Civil War tale and was directed by a previous guest of mine, Travis Mills, who you might remember from the Cornbread Cosa Nostra episode that I did. He's going to be in town doing a special screening of the film at the Imogene Theater in Milton, Florida. If you want to get tickets, the showing is this Friday March 15th. If you want to get tickets, you can go to the com. That's I-M-O-G-E-N-E theater.com. So I'll be doing a podcast with him and actor Shannon Williams, uh, who is a local actor here based in the Gulf Coast area. They'll be on talking about the film Son of a Gun. Really looking forward to that uh, rare in-person podcast, it seems like these days. So that's going to be a lot of fun. But until then, you can check out past episodes of the show on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Just search for the Derek Diamond Experience. If you want to follow the show on social media, go to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at D Podcast. And as always, thank you to my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for this podcast. Their songs "Late Night Drive Through" and "Light and Jazzy" can be found on their latest album, "Greetings from the Space Fan," which is available on Apple Music, Google Play and spotify and that's going to do it for this week's show thank you once again to jason finney and we'll see you guys next week with travis mills and shannon williams